Get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning.
Mark's not here. Amen. <laughs> you know, it's like a two-minute party during that that second song when we all greet each other, and I just forgot that I had work to do. <laughs> amen. You did three amens? Four? Was there four? You did an extra one. You amen. can't count. <laughs> Watch this. Yeehaw. Yeah, they really like that. That's that's Amen Texas style. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. I hope you are doing well. Is it still foggy out? When I came in this morning, it was it was kind of cool. You know, I, of course, there was nobody on the road, but. But it is uh, so good to see you. If you'll take your worship guide and open it up, we have some announcements I want to make this morning. Um, we have next Sunday. Okay, so the month of February, as you know, is a special month. And for those of you who are visiting, I'll just let you know. We are very mission-oriented at Carpenter's Way. We believe it's our job to share Christ with, within this community. And then we have the privilege of supporting missionaries across the globe. We do that. Uh, we associate for the mission program with the Southern Baptist Convention. Con convention the International Mission Board, and we, out of our normal giving, we send uh, tens of thousands of dollars to them for their mission program across the world. For those of you who don't know, they have about just under 6,000 missionaries across the globe that evangelize and plant churches, so we participate with that. And then on top of that, with the uh, faithful giving of our church, we're able to support, I think somebody told me last week, 21 other missionaries. Is that right? 21 other missionaries or mission groups that we specifically as a church support throughout the year. And in the month of February, we try to introduce you on Facebook, on our Facebook page as well as here to as many of those as possible. And uh, at the last Sunday in February this, uh, this month, we're going to have our Mission Sunday. And next Sunday, we're going to have uh, at least three different missionaries from across the globe that are going to be up here, and we're going to do a panel instead of the normal preaching. And out in the welcome area, I believe all of our missionaries, local and international, are going to have tables. So you're going to be able to wander around during the uh, Bible study hour to just see what they do. And we're not going to be doing a special offering because we take about, it's about 15 or 16 percent of your giving goes towards the mission support that we do. But next week, you'll get to meet all of those people. So I would ask you next week, try to be here. It's really, really important that you're in the house uh, so that you can meet these people and see what they do and see how you can support them through prayer. And you already support them financially if you give. So uh, it's a pretty special season. Uh, so having said that, what you're going to watch right now, we've been each week, the last three weeks, we've been bringing you different videos from some of our missionaries. And there is a, mis, uh, a misunderstanding that to be a missionary or in full-time vocational service to the Lord, you've got to preach or teach. That's not true. Uh, the gentleman that we have been supporting for a few years that you're going to hear from see the family, I asked them, at some point we're going to do a live uh, Q&A with them. Uh, he's not a preacher. He's a, a, an, an airline pilot and a mechanic. And uh, I'm just going to let him speak for himself. Let's watch this video. Hello to everybody at Carpenter's Way. My name is Kent Embleton, and I, along with my family, serve with Mission Aviation Fellowship uh, here in Nampula, Mozambique. And we've been here for four years. We spent a year before that studying Portuguese in Portugal. And we work here as a pilot mechanic family. So I maintain airplanes, and I fly airplanes to remote places. And because we're a small team, I get the opportunity to do a lot of extra um, unique tasks, uh, some in finance, some in construction, uh, base maintenance, that kind of thing. 
Um, so we're a small team, so that means we all wear a lot of hats. And uh, what I do as a pilot primarily is fly um, a variety of clients, be they missionaries or church um, groups or uh, businesses, tourists, um, occasionally just a, a load of cargo. Um, but all these things to remote places. Um, we have two aircraft that are both um, equipped for landing in remote places, um, which there are plenty of here in Mozambique. Um, this is a, uh, a war-torn country. It's a problem um, for people to access remote places, and the airplane saves a lot of time. Um, so, as a mechanic, we maintain our own airplanes. We don't really um, work on other people's outside airplanes. Um, but uh, being a mechanic is really helpful as well because um, I can diagnose problems while I'm flying and um, split my time between the two functions in aviation. So um, yeah, that's an overview of what we do here. Uh, give you a little bit more information about our family and uh, a little bit more about um, how you could get involved or um, hopefully answer some questions about um, what we do as, as members of MAF. But before I get into that, I just want to say thank you um, to the mission investment team at Carpenter's Way for their support. Um, and we had a fantastic visit um, to your church a little over a year ago. And uh, just we're really blessed by our fellowship there. Uh, we want to say thank you uh, for your support and uh, God bless you. So I just want to introduce you to my family. This is my wife Amy and our oldest son Isaac and Russell and our baby Nehemiah. Yeah, so we just wanted to give you a little picture of what our house looks like. This is where the boys and I spend most of our time. Um, yeah, and my role is mostly just wife and mom. I stay at home and keep things moving here, much like I would in the States. Um, a few things are a little bit different. I have a house helper um, that helps with the cleaning and cooking and watching the boys in our house. Things just move a lot slower here in Mozambique, and as you can see, we have a lot of dirt that comes in the house. Um, that's actually been a fun relationship for me. Um, she's a young gal about my age. She has kids my kids' age, she has a little baby my baby's age, um, so that's been a fun relationship to develop. And yeah, we've just started homeschooling a little bit with Isaac, since that's our best schooling option at the current time and it's going well, so yeah. So I counted a blessing that I'm able to use technical skills um, in a foreign country like this um, in service for the kingdom. Um, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a Bible translator or a teacher, um, I'm a pilot and a mechanic and I get to exercise those skills here um, for the glory of God. And you do need some training to become a, a mechanic um, and a pilot and I got my training at Laterno University in Longview. So again from our whole family, God bless you all. Thank you for supporting us. We wish we could be there in person and be a part of your missions event. Uh, thank you for supporting missionaries and being involved in what God is doing in Mozambique and the world. So through the years, we have uh, supported MEF Pilots Missionary Aviation Fellowship. What they do is they um, 
you know, some missionaries are in very remote areas, and so they, they need supplies. So they'll drop them in. Sometimes they'll literally drop them by parachute out the windows. Other times they land on dirt and or uh, grass um, patches. I mean, these guys are trained. And uh, they don't like the term bush pilot, but they are. I mean, these guys, the, these guys are amazing. And uh, this, is, this is one of my favorite ones because there is a misunderstanding. And you could tell they were a little nervous. We were going to do a Q&A live on Facebook and, or on, on uh, FaceTime, and sometime we'll do that. But uh, there's a little fear of the technology. Um, but I think, I think I really want you to know, especially young people, that you don't have to be a preacher or a teacher to be in full-time vocational service to the Lord. There's, there is a lot of other things to do that serves the kingdom, and this is one of those. When he was here a year and a half ago, they, it was just such a blessing to have them. But he told us when he left, he told Robert, I, 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 don't, I don't preach and I don't teach, but I wouldn't mind sharing with the church. So that's what that looks like. <laughs> but, man, we're so blessed that they're there. We're so blessed that we get to support them. And, again, you support them if you give regularly because that's how we do that. I, uh, it, we as a church, we are a family, and I mentioned this last week. And what you give is the resources we have to do ministry here, and this is a tithe of that. There is a percentage of our budget of your giving, of receipts, of your giving that goes to missions right off the top. And our mission investment team takes a, a large uh, chunk of that money, and they designate it for missionaries, and, and this family is one of those. And uh, so, again, thank you for giving. Whether you know it or not, you are participating in the work of global evangelization. It's very, very important that a church has a healthy, that, that does that. Plus, it's exciting to be a part of that. And uh, next Sunday morning, I want you blown away at, at what God is allowing us to do as a church family. So please be here uh, after we're done. Like I said, when you walk in in the morning, there's going to be so many tables out there. You're going to have to move around them, and there'll still be coffee. Don't worry. But uh, I, just, I just want you to celebrate what God allows us to do here in East Texas by way of supporting these folks. And uh, so thank you very much for that. Uh, just a couple other things that I want to highlight. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome to Carpenter's Way. We are in a study right now of the life of Jesus from all four of the Gospels. We've tried to put them, or I've tried to put them in chronological order. We're kind of walking through. And so you're joining us on week 43 and uh, of this study, and we're glad that you're here. If you brought a Bible, you can jump in or it'll be on the screen, but we just want you to know that our hope and our prayer, having had you with us today, is that you fall in love with Jesus Christ. We want you to like us. We really want you to fall in love with Jesus. And uh, having said that, in a moment, we will be taking our offering, and if you're visiting, don't give. You just pass the plate as it goes by. We have made a commitment as a family to support the ministries and missions of Carpenter's Way, and we don't want you distracted with money. So, also, a couple other things. The If Gathering took place last weekend. I talked about it in my, me in my message uh, a little bit. Julie and I were listening. This is a women's discipleship conference that takes place each year around the Dallas area. Well, we have a group of ladies that are in leadership in our community that takes some of those videos and puts together a conference. And there's an insert about that. It's uh, at uh, Camp Life His Way, I think. Camp His Way. I'm sorry, I've never been there. But information on there. If you have any questions, you can talk to Casey or it'll tell you uh, uh, tell you who to contact. Casey Carnley's number is in there, so make sure you call her about 3 or 4 in the morning. She really likes that. So, uh, But ladies, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing, and uh, we got to hear some of the messages last week, and they were very, very encouraging. So take, make use of that. Um, for those of you 
who also are interested in learning more about Carpenter's Way. We've been having a lot of visitors lately. On March 22nd, that's Sunday, we're going to have our next uh, Carpenter's Way 101 class or new members class. You don't have to join if you come to that. You'll learn all about the church and meet the elders and the pastoral staff. But that'll be during the worship service hours in the library. And, and you can read the rest of this stuff. Um, I just wanted to highlight those things for you. I am going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time as we prepare for our offering. Again, if you're visiting, this isn't for you. We're just glad you're here today. Uh, I am going to commit the rest of our service to the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can gather this morning and worship you. And I, I thank you, Lord, for our, our, our friends and family and our, our ministries, even in Mozambique. Father, this morning that are serving you by doing mechanical things and aircraft. And last week we saw Cassidy. And Lord, uh, the week before we talked about Madagascar and our, our work there. And we're just privileged that you would allow us to participate with these people. Thank you, Father. Thank you for allowing us to, to help spread the gospel globally. Lord, we, uh, we don't just send money and people across the globe. We also understand that it's our responsibility here to share the hope of Christ. And so I pray you'd allow us to do that. As we turn our eyes and our attention now back to you, to worship, to your word, it is my prayer that everybody here this morning, everybody watching on, online, would be blessed having joined us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you'd like to stand during this song and the next few, we would love it. But as always, you don't have to feel pressured to do that if you're able. God in his wisdom came down from above and wrote a new story his love. He became a mortal. He wore flesh and bone so that we would never walk alone. I'm not alone. Cause everywhere I'm going, he's already there. Even in the darkness, I'm Discouraged. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along the right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valleys, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, I heard a thousand stories of what they think your life but I heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. And you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. Who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Oh, and I see many searching for answers far and wide, but I know that we're all. 
Sounded pretty good. You know, if you sit in the back, I know that's culture and tradition, but man, you miss some of the choir. That is the song that we will sing until we go home, and then we'll probably sing it for the next million years, won't we? How loved we are by God. Let's uh, let's take a moment. Our kids are uh, bailing out for their programming. We have, uh, for those, yeah, K through third grade are dismissed, and we have a lesson from the Bible for those children that age. Let's just take a moment and pray for them. Lord Jesus, thank you for how you love children. We love children as well. And Father, we want you to grab them at a young age and we want them to fill them with we want you to fill them with your Holy Spirit so they can avoid some of the choices that some of us have made and the temptations of Lucifer in this world, things that feed the flesh but destroy our lives. The wages of sin is still death, Father. So it is our prayer that each young man and woman in this church comes to know you at a young age. Father, may they look at the older folks in this church, the adults, and may they see us as men and women who live lives worthy of mimicking. Lord, uh, there is a time for decisions. And this text was a moment in time where you called the people of Jerusalem to make a decision. So I pray, Lord, that uh, the text itself would speak to your children. I pray that if there's somebody in this room or online who doesn't know you, may today be the day of their salvation. And I pray, Father, that the words of Mark would fade away so the words of God could be heard clearly. So speak to us now. Use us. Thank you that we just got to stand together and sing and worship you and talk of your love. And, Lord, may that be the song of the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In John chapter 7, verse 1, it tells us that Jesus traveled around Galilee he wanted to stay out of Judea where Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters, and Jesus' brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't be famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, they said, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus replied, now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you because... It does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. And after saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. You probably remember that text from two weeks ago in our study of this, that after three years of ministry, of miracles, of messages, both to people individually and in mass, Jesus' brothers have not become his followers. In fact, they're openly mocking him and his task, and his message, and his ministry, just like the Jewish leadership had. They dared Jesus to go to the festival of shelters in Jerusalem, one of the major feasts, one of the seven major feasts, where mil thousands, if not millions, would gather, hundreds of thousands, forgive me, would gather in a city that actually wasn't that large. Hundreds and thousands of, come, of pilgrims would come for these festivals, and they dare him to go there and actually make his name known. He tells them that his time hadn't come yet because if he goes and does that, they're going to kill him. 
but he was hated because of his message. And I think it's kind of a backhanded shot that they wouldn't be hated because their message wasn't offensive. Verse 10 of chapter 7 in John says that after his brothers had left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. Uh, For those of you who realize that we looked at this two weeks ago, you're probably going, well, last week they, we, you know, we were trying to do this in chronological order, so let me kind of bring you to where we are. This text in John 7 takes us directly to Jerusalem, but last week's text, and you remember that, because after the kerfuffle, I'll call it with his brothers, and half-brothers, and he goes with the disciples, um, and he walks from Galilee to Jerusalem on the way to the festival. So this week, John 7 tells us that he's going there. Last week tells us about the journey. And remember, he sent some people ahead to go into a Samaritan village to prepare a place for them to stay. And the Samaritans don't like him because he's a Jew, so they don't let him stay. The disciples want to call fire down from heaven. And he actually rebukes them, it tells us. And after he rebukes them, it tells us that uh, Jesus, on the way to Jerusalem, actually sends out 72 of his followers to present the gospel of Jesus the Messiah Throughout the, throughout the countryside, throughout the region. So he sends them out. And you remember that last week's discussion was sent out as lambs among wolves. And that was our message last week. Today's text is when he arrives in Jerusalem. John chapter 7, verse 11. The Jewish festivals of, of shelters is in full swing. Verse 11. The Jewish leaders tried to find Jesus at the festival and they kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowd. Some argued, he's a good man. Others said, he's nothing but a fraud who deceives people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Having traveled and ministered now for three years, and this is where we find ourselves in the story, Jesus' ministry lasts about three and a half years. You remember two weeks ago we looked at the text and it told us that now he turns his face towards Jerusalem because his time to die had come. For the next, uh, for the next few months as we continue through the story, it picks up a story. The story is going to last until his ascension about six more months. Not our study, but the life of ministry of Jesus. That gives you an idea where we are. I'm not going to make that joke. Some of you are waiting for it. But the life and ministry of Jesus will last six more months. He'll be killed. And then uh, that'll be about five months from now. We don't know exactly. And then he'll rise from the dead three days later. And after that, about a month and a half later, he'll ascend into heaven. That will take place about six months from this point. He had traveled and ministered now for three years. And nearly everyone in the Jewish community had seen his miracles personally or at least heard of them. And they had heard of his teaching. As you can see at this religious festival, Jesus is a major subject of conversation, who he is. The Jewish leaders had decided that he was not on their team because he was a disruptor to their program, their plan, their doctrine. And so instead of figuring him out, they decide to have him arrested and killed. The crowd, predominantly at this festival, made up of pilgrims, although you're going to see later that there were some residents of Jerusalem at the festival, predominantly made up of, of, uh, of, of pilgrims for the festival, Uh, they had mixed thoughts on Jesus. Some thought he was a good man. Some thought he was a deceiver. The Talmud tells uh, Jews that if a man deceives you religiously, if he claims to be something that he's not, that he should be stoned to death. So these people would have been sympathetic to the Jewish religious leader's thoughts on Jesus. 
Whatever their opinions were, however, they were afraid of saying, those who were on his side were afraid of saying anything positive about Jesus because they would be cast out of the temple grounds. The religious Jewish leaders held the, uh, the keys to the temple. And for a Jew, the temple was the place that you met God. Remember, the, the veil in the temple hadn't been ripped in too. This is where God went, was. This is where you offered sacrifices. And to be cast out of the temple was to be removed from access to God. And so they didn't want to say anything. Just on a side note, you should never, ever, ever let a religious leader like me or anybody else keep you from God. Ever. Never fear being rejected by the church in exchange for being intimate with God. And the church has at times taught you things that are flat out wrong and legalistic in order to control your behavior but not make you intimate with God. And that's not okay. Things on race issues or behavioral issues that Scripture doesn't say are sins have been manipulated throughout the history of the church to get you to behave or not behave a certain way. That's not okay. That's exactly what the Jews were doing. My encouragement for you, my pleading with you, is that you decide for yourself who Jesus is by reading the eyewitness testimonies that have been made available to you in lots of different ways of modern English languages. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John may be a significant part of the Bible, but first and foremost, they are eyewitness testimonies to Jesus' life and ministry. Read it for yourself within context. This is a... Um, this is really difficult to understand that even though most of you probably know every story, story in the Gospels, most of you probably don't know them within their context. And that puts you at a significant disadvantage. That's like watching the second quarter of a football game and assuming you understand how it's played. You might understand some things about it, but the truth is because we've turned our education, our Christian education, into 30-minute shots at you, and because most of us have very busy lives, and most of us, when we do devotions or, or spend time with the Lord, lean upon somebody else's devotional guide to help us understand what it says, we don't know for ourselves where things fit into the story. And I beg of you to study and read the Scriptures for yourselves. Well, I don't know how to study the Scriptures, Pastor. Then read them. Read them. You don't have to start in Genesis. Start in Matthew. Work through the Gospels over and over and over. Never stop. This is a real relationship between you and God. It's not between you and the church and God. It's between you and God. When the church comes together, we worship together in one accord. The Spirit binds us together. But one of the problems with the Southern Baptist Convention is, if you add, and I'm taking a shot at this, so take a deep breath. One of the problems with the Southern Baptist Convention is, one of the questions that you'll, you'll be asked by somebody who's in the know is, do you follow the Baptist faith and message? Which one, the old one or the new one? Who cares? The question is, do you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and do you know who he is through his word? That's the question. And whether you're Baptist or Assemblies of God or Catholic, we have allowed people that have more training than us to tell us about God. And you, did, you, you don't do your marriage like that. You don't go to your mother-in-law to figure out how your spouse is. If you do, you're silly. If you want to get to know your spouse, you move in with them. You talk with them. You have dinner with them. And those of us who have been married more than two and a half years realize that at the 10-year period and the 20-year period, there's a lot of stuff yet to be learned, isn't there? The pain of their childhood and how it manifests itself in their life and thinking. And, and even at 30 years, we've been married 32, thank you, Julie, 32, 33 this summer? 
It's been a long time. 33 years this summer, and i got to tell you something. I really like my wife more now than I did on our wedding day because I have learned that there's depth there that I didn't know was there, and I know, and I tell my, our Sunday night Bible study group, it's like, <laughs> the truth is that for the first 10 years of our marriage, I did a lot of the talking, and then we start, I, and then she started to do more talking. Then we moved to Texas, and women talk a lot in Texas, and, and, and the truth is there's a lot of depth in there that I didn't know existed, and I'm being funny to make you laugh a little bit, but the truth is there's a lot of depth there. And in, in the first year of our marriage, I was foolish enough to think that I understood how she thought. I do now. She's very easy to understand. Happy Valentine's Day, sweetheart. It, it's just true, and you know it. You know, if somebody's honest, it is interesting. Whenever somebody gets on Facebook and, and, and declares their undying love to their spouse that's perfect, you can be sure that they're having a fight that day. You know their marriage is healthy when they say, we've, been having, we've had some ups and downs in our marriage, but I am so glad I'm with you. There's an honesty to that, isn't there? Well, there's up and downs in your relationship with God. And sometimes we don't like that. So we let other people tell us about God. We let our favorite author, our favorite hymnist tell us about God because we don't want to get to know him. And that put the Jews at a significant disadvantage. Every one of the Jewish kids grew up in Jewish training, in Hebraic training. They learned the Hebrew language, although most of them spake, spoke at this point in Jerusalem. The language spoken at this time was Aramaic. That was the language. That was the dialect at that time. But they were all trained in traditional Hebrew so that they could read the Hebrew scriptures for themselves. Uh, as they got more into it, as they became more educated, they would pick out the kids that were uniquely geared towards that, and they would begin to make, train them to be rabbis, to be leaders in the Jewish community, to be temple leaders or servants. That's what would happen. They would, they would begin to separate those who had a gift and those who did not, and that would continue. But every one of these Jewish people were taught the Scriptures, and that's why this community here this day, and I'm, I'm going to get more into the text in a moment, but this was an extremely religious and Jewish community. Every Sabbath, every Saturday, they would go to the synagogue, these religious people. If you're going to pilgrim and take the money and the time to go to seven festivals a year, especially some of the lesser festivals, you can be sure that these are extremely religious Jews. And they would go to Sabbath every Saturday, and when they went, the Torah would be read, the first five books of the Old Testament, as well as a, a reading from the minor prophets and the major prophets, which all talked about the coming Messiah and their sinfulness. They knew about Jesus before his birth. They knew about him, but they didn't recognize him. And even those that did, it just told us they wouldn't stand up for him because they were afraid of being cast out of the temple. Never, ever, ever exchange your relationship with the church for a relationship with Jesus. Because that's exactly where Satan wants you. He wants you to be more Baptist than follower of Jesus. He wants you to be more worshiper than follower of Jesus. More assembly of God. More Pentecostal. More experiential than submissive child or husband of God or wife of God. We are the bride of Christ. Keep reading. Verse 14. So Jesus is at this religious festival. It lasts about seven days. Uh, there, uh, it's about halfway through now. Verse 14. And the story gets really great here. Then midway through the festival, about day four, Jesus went up to the temple and he begins to teach. So the, for the first few days of the festival, Jesus kind of meandering around with a, a big thing over his face. He's, he's, he's being secretive. He doesn't want anybody to identify him. So he kind of meanders through the crowd, listening to them debate about him. 
staying away from the religious leaders. And now his time has come. His time has come. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked themselves. For the first few days of the festival, and I I want you to envision the next part of this story because the visualization is awesome. So Jesus had been sneaking around and four, three and a half, four days into the festival, midway through it, Jesus goes to the temple and he begins to preach and teach. This was not uncommon because within the temple grounds, and if you know Jewish culture and communities, you'll see that this is still not uncommon today. They like to debate. And so it was not uncommon for a rabbi to go into the temple courts, which would have Gentiles as well as Jews inside of it, and he would begin teaching truth, and that's what Jesus does. He goes in there, and he begins to teach. But what happens is he, it, people gravitate to him, religious leaders, Jewish pilgrims, people from Jerusalem, and they begin to wander around and listen, and they are amazed at how much he knows. Sounds like when he's 12 years old, doesn't it? Remember when he's 12 and he goes with his mom and dad to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and he sits and he talks with the, the, the leaders, the priests, and, and, and ask them questions, and it says that even the religious leaders were amazed at Jesus' knowledge of the Scriptures. Well, as is often the case today, a teacher back in biblical times was identified by his training or his rabbi. You are familiar with this because some people like to label others as Calvinists or Arminians. They like to know if they're trained in a Baptist school or assembly of God or a seminary, who their teacher was, their hero, the pastor, or we'll even ask who your favorite worship band is. Because that's how we identify. In East Texas, it's not uncommon to say, are you a Christian? Yeah. Or in other words, where do you go to church? That's basically the same thing. We identify people's spiritual health based upon who their teacher is, what their church believes, where they go. And that's what's going. That's the problem here. Because Jesus had no identifiable rabbi that he would align himself with. And when he began to teach in the temple area, he got the same response as he did when he was 12 years old. How does he know so much without any training? Is he self-taught? Verse 16, so Jesus told them, knowing what they're asking, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who speaks honor, uh, who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you're trying to kill me. See, Jesus did not read the book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. He could have used that book. But, you know, he's doing pretty well all along, right up until the end when he says, and you want to kill me. While the crowd expected someone to be taught in a religious school, Jesus actually says that he was taught by God himself. Now, again, you're reading this in an English Bible, in an East East Texas culture, And you have to understand that what Jesus is talking about, he who sent me, he's saying, I'm bringing his message. Now, look, we have a tendency, and and I get it, we have a tendency to focus just on Jesus. But I want to remind you that Jesus did not come to the earth on his own accord. He was sent by the Father. I mentioned this last week, that we have a tendency to think Jesus is the one who loves me. That is true, but just so you know, it is because the Father so loved the world, he sent his son. So as we keep going through, I want to really encourage you not to blow off the Trinity. All three of them are absolutely crazy about it. You can be grieved in your spirit, going through a difficult time, going to the doctor, brokenhearted over somebody's death, 
And you can actually pray to the Holy Spirit. You don't have to pray to Jesus all the time. You can pray to the Father. You can pray to all three of them. The Holy Spirit's within you, and they all love you. But it is the Father's plan that Jesus would come and redeem you. And that's what he's saying here. I'm not here to build up my little religion. I'm not even here on my own accord. I was sent by God, and they knew exactly what he was saying. It is, uh, it is interesting to me that when he says he was taught by God who had sent him, while the Jewish religion had been about who your teacher was, Jesus was about God. I just want to tell you a thought I had this week. Much of modern preaching today has become one verse and quoting other people that you may respect, from Beth Moore to John MacArthur to whoever, you fill in the gap, your favorite theologian or your favorite musician or your favorite Christian psychologist, James Dobson, to validate that that, that verse might, in fact, be a good verse. God's word is enough. we got to get back to that. God's word is enough. And I know that, that, that Satan has made us feel at a disadvantage, like, well, they're an atheist, so I can't use the word of God. I just want to remind you that the word of God never returns void. It is enough. You can quote John 3.16 to an atheist, and they can say, well, that's just the Bible. God won't let that return void. That's not how this works. The word of God, the Bible, the, the book that you hold in your hand, it is the very breath of God, and it is inspired by him. It is usable by him, and you don't have to defend it from human point of view. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm not here to tell you that I was taught by Rabbi Joe over there. I was taught by God himself, and what I say isn't my word, it's his word. we got to get back to that, right? Do not let your flesh make you Bible shy. It's the only thing that matters, because it's God's self-revelation to us. Even if it's agreed by everybody at Dallas Theological Seminary, every pastor in this community, it doesn't make it more true. And even if it's disagreed, everything Jesus says, by every Jewish religious leader in the temple courts, it doesn't matter, it's still true. And that is lost on our culture. You, you will hear all the time, well, my truth is, there's no such thing as your truth. There's just truth. And it is your job, if you're wise, to find it. Find truth. Don't let anybody tell you truth doesn't exist because it does exist. And one day every knee will bow before it. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Some of you watching on the Internet right now are going, I knew he was really a Baptist. I'm just right on this. And the reason I'm right on it is because Baptists, Assemblies of God, I don't get paid enough to be wrong on this. I do not want to spend eternity apart from God. And those who go to Carpenter's Way know that about, 15, about 20 years ago, I realized that some of the things that I had been taught as a child in Sunday school simply wasn't right. And I went back and reread this book, and I was realigned with the truth of the Scripture. And you know what? I get in trouble in Baptist circles because of it. I get in trouble in Assemblies of God circles because I have questions for some of the things that they do. And I'm not right on everything, but I'm surrounded by about a 1,000 people who are keeping me account to the Scripture. That's what we do here. That's what we do here. We don't agree on everything, but we go to the Scriptures and wrestle through them. That's a totally different message, though. That was off, off my notes. So that was free. 
So Jesus just said in his text that he didn't come to lift up his own ideas or his messages or start a school of thought, but he came to do the will of his Father. And those who want to do God's will know it. The crowd's response is incredible. The temple crowd replied, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Now, there are three things that happen here. Number one, Jesus just told the crowd that they were not keeping the Mosaic Covenant. That means you're out of fellowship with God. They don't even address that. They don't fall on their knees and repent. They don't ask him about that. That's not even their interest. The second thing that happens here is they call him demon-possessed. They don't even address his supernatural miracles. They don't address his accusations. They don't address his argument. You can be sure, and I would encourage you over the next political year, the person who's losing the argument is always the person who casts aspersions. If you have ever debated or had a serious conversation with somebody debating issue, you will know that when the other person runs out of good arguments, they go, you're a jerk. That's what they're doing here. They're saying, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? That's their point. That's their case. Their whole case is, we can't deal with the depth of knowledge. We can't deal with your boldness. We're amazed at how much you know about the Scripture, but we're not going to deal with any of that or our sinfulness. We're just going to say, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? I want you to take note that the crowd in the temple doesn't repent when Jesus accuses them of sin. Side thought. When Jesus shows you your sinfulness, would you just fall to your knees and say you're right? Don't explain it away that you're inclined to look at porn. Don't explain it away that you have a drinking problem and it's because you, you're genetically predisposed towards drinking. Don't explain it away. Just repent. If you've been married seven times, that's six times too many, but God is still faithful and will forgive you. I, I, it is what it is. God's gracious, His mercy, His love is extended to you. If you've had 42 affairs, He is here ready to forgive you from those 42 affairs. The 43rd is going to knock you around on. But the 42nd one, I mean, you, you understand what I'm saying. I mean, I, the, the reality is when God reveals to your sin, fall on your face. Don't go, well, I've got to find out if adultery is really a problem. That's exactly what, what people even in the church are doing today. Well, maybe we misunderstood what the Greek word for adultery was. Maybe it doesn't mean marriage. Maybe it's one woman at one time. Maybe I can have seven monogamous relationships in a week and be faithful to God. That is the dumbest thing. It is what it is. And yet we genuflect so hard to accept our flesh. Jesus is standing in front of a crowd and he is saying, you have broken the Mosaic Covenant. And their response is, you're demon-possessed. Who, who's trying to kill you? You're crazy. Jesus turns away from the crowd that doesn't know about those who want to kill him, and he looks right at the temple leaders, and he says this in verse 29. Jesus replies, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath, too, when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. Actually, the tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. I think Jesus took a shot there, because I believe that the Jews actually taught that Moses was the start of circumcision. Jesus just told them, no, it wasn't. It was Abraham. How do you know? How do you know, Jesus? I was there. Verse 23, for if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it as to not break the law, uh, as to not break the law of Moses. 
So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Oh, that is a huge verse. We should have memorized that as children, right next to John 3.16, because that's the problem. Whether you're a Jew back then or a Baptist today, and I know I'm picking on Baptists, that's because we is one, but, or a Assemblies of God, Evangelical is probably a better term, but the truth is we want the simple stuff, John 3.16. We don't want to look at verse, verse 17, which says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to seek and save the lost. We don't want, we don't want the context because it takes too much work. We want a pastor or a Sunday school teacher to tell us how an application of a verse works so that I don't have to think for myself. He's telling them to look below the surface of his life, who he is, so that they can judge correctly. If you remember back to Jesus' last visit to Jerusalem before this story, Jesus actually goes to the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, and he begins a huge controversy because he heals a man. That man runs to the temple area, and they said, who, who healed you? And, they, and he, he points out Jesus, and they begin accusing him of breaking the Mosaic law and therefore being a sinner. Jesus, in one foul swoop, actually responds to that by saying, well, you heal one part of a, of a Jew's body on the eighth day to obey the Mosaic covenant. You're breaking the Sabbath, rabbis, when you circumcise a little boy. You only heal one part of the body, but I heal the whole body on a Sabbath, and you call me a sinner? You're crazy. You're out of line, is what he's saying. The problem with the Jews was that they had turned their obedience to God into a sacrificial, a superficial, legalistic exercise that was regu regulated not by God, but by fallen, hypocritical men who were hungry for power and peopleism. That's the problem. So Jesus exhorts the crowd, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Never, ever, ever, family, be satisfied with a superficial look at God or his truth. Study to show yourselves approved, a workman who needs not be ashamed. To know the Jesus of the scriptures, you must look at all of the scriptures. And for my Baptist brethren who like to write off the Old Covenant, if you want to know who God is, you have to know the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Well, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's angry. He's not any more angry than the God of the New Testament, and he's no less loving. You just haven't read it. You see, the Old Testament's a setup. It's a setup, according to Romans chapter 3, to point out that man can't save himself even if I only give him ten stupid laws. In fact, it's a setup in the Garden of Eden. I'll give you one rule. Don't eat the cookie that falls off that tree, and they couldn't even do that without a sin nature. And then all they have to do is sacrifice. And Cain kills his brother instead of sacrificing. And all they have to do is get in an ark, and God will save them from their own wicked culture and society. But they, only eight of them do. And when they get out of the boat, they get drunk and they sodomize each other. It's an incredible story. You go through the Old Testament, which is laborious and long and a historical story, and time after time, you see people turning their back on God given every opportunity to save themselves, and they can't. And so finally Jesus comes, and he walks on the earth, and for three and a half years he tells people, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible, that I'm the Savior. And their answer is, you're crazy, you're demon-possessed. Who gives you the authority to speak like that? Even to this day, I warn you not to trust me. Study the Scriptures. And when you find me wrong, let's talk. For those of you who haven't been here long, bear with me. But there's about once or twice a year where I get up here and I say, look, you were right. I said something wrong. Fortunately, there are always little silly things. I'm right on the big guys. Kidding.
But the truth is we're in this together to discover from the scriptures what's true. Because this is God's self-revelation to us. This is, this is him saying, I want you to know me. And from Genesis chapter 1 to the end of, end of Revelation, he introduces himself. Well, I don't get Revelation. It's too difficult. Well, it's not supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be just God revealing himself to you, you guy. Well, I don't understand those little locusts with women's or lion's teeth and women's hair. So keep reading. You don't have to understand it all. He'll let you know what you need to know. But look beneath the surface. If you don't, you will stand in a crowd going, who is Jesus? Because you don't know him. This was intense. Jesus was facing off with the religious leaders. Okay, I'm, I'm getting to my favorite part. We're almost done. So good. Jesus was facing off with the religious leaders in the temple courts midway through one of the seven major festivals surrounded by thousands of Jewish people who are talking about Jesus, who he is. They're listening to this debate. And they are there to remember the wilderness wanderings and how God provided for them. But Jesus had come to push people to think and decide for themselves as to who he really was. So he tells them to look between the surface. And here we go. I want you to picture this. You ready? Okay, maybe not. You ready? Okay, thank you. Verse 25. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, is this the man that they're trying to kill? So the desire to have Jesus killed was known by those who live in Jerusalem. All right? But by those who were pilgrims, they didn't know it. Because before they're like, who's going to kill you? Keep going. But here he is speaking in public, and they're not saying anything to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he's the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he's just going to simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. You see, they didn't look beneath the surface. Because the Old Testament, specifically Hosea, actually tells you that Jesus the Messiah would be born in, in Bethlehem. And some in the crowd are going to say later that, he's from, that, that he would be from Bethlehem, the Messiah. And that's because they thought Jesus had a Nazareth accent, and they don't realize that he is from Bethlehem. They never looked beneath the surface. Verse 28, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, yes, you know me. All right, get this. This is so cool. So Jesus is teaching, right? And the people are mumbling among themselves, we know where he's from, and the Messiah isn't going to come from where he's from. The Messiah is just going to show up on a cloud or something. Jesus hears them. And he says, yeah, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him, but I know him because I come from him, and he sent me to you. That is a supernatural event. In other words, they're mumbling above themselves, husbands to wife, uh, a priest to parishioner. They're talking, and Jesus, as he's done on four or five other occasions, actually hears their thoughts and responds to it. At that second, they should have fallen on their knees with the realization that this guy this guy is not who they thought he was. He's now reading their minds. It doesn't end there. In verse seven, uh, 30, then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. This is the second time they try to grab him and kill him, but he doesn't let him. Doesn't let him. I have no idea what happens here. I don't know if he disappears and shows up over here. I don't know if he plays whack-a-mole. I don't know. I have no idea, but it tells us in this text that the leaders tried to arrest him. Go get him. But no one laid a hand on him because the time had not yet come. I remind you that at the rest of Jesus, they come to get him, and, they, and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am the name of God, and they all fall back. 
Why? Because you can't arrest Jesus unless he gives you permission to arrest him. This isn't just some dude. This isn't a rabbi. This isn't some human with great philosophy. This isn't just a teacher. This is God in the flesh. Whoa. Verse 31. So many among the crowd at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? So some were convinced. When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I'm only going to be with you a little longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me. You cannot go where I'm going. The Jewish uh, leaders were puzzled by this statement, and I think actually happy. Listen to what they think. Where's he planning to go, they asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to, to the Jews in other lands? Maybe he'll even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, you will search for me but not find me, and you can't go where I'm going? Ready? This is a good part. On the last day, day seven, at the climax of the festival, let me tell you what happens at this festival. So it's a seven-day festival. And every day, the priests led a solemn uh, march around the altar in the temple court, okay? The whole crowd. Just like you see in, in Muslim tradition during the Hajj, you know how they all walk around? There was something like that going on in the temple area. Each of the days there was a solemn festival, and they would walk around the altar on seven days crying out to the Lord. On the seventh day, the last day of the fa- festival, on the seventh time around the altar, the religious leaders would then take the people, the crowd, in a solemn festival uh, out of the altar in the temple courts to the Gailan Spring where they would put wa- water in a gold pitcher while the congregation chanted Psalm 118.25. Psalm 118.25 is, Lord, please save us now. And the choir, after that was chanted, the choir would begin singing Isaiah 12.3. With joy you will drink uh, deeply from the fountain of God's salvation. Okay? So this is going on over and over again. Thousands of people. They're walking out of the temple courts on the sixth time around the altar. They walk to this, to this, uh, this well, and, and the high priest takes the, the jar, and he puts the water in it as they're chanting, give us water, give us salvation, give us your salvation. And then he walks back, and he pours that water after the seventh time around the altar. He pours it on the altar. And what they're signifying there is how God had provided water out of a rock in the wilderness had quenched their thirst. And as they do that, on the last day, at the climax of the festival, while he's pouring the water, this text tells us, Jesus stood and shouted at the crowd, Anyone who's thirsty, come to me! Yeah, that's the right response. Whoa. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said livers, that thing, he was saying, let me try it again. Is that not a cool visual? In case you're wondering if Jesus was always clandestine and kind of secretive and and, and parabolic, you know, parables and, and didn't speak clearly, it doesn't get any clearer than this. They're pouring out the water. They're crying out for salvation. Let us drink of the water of God's salvation. They're singing it. And he goes, here I am. Come to me. I'm the water you're looking for. 
And if you drink from me, rivers of living living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. What's he talking about? Pentecost. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not entered his glory. They were celebrating God's temporary thirst quenching of water provision in the wilderness, pouring water on the altar at the solemn festival, begging for Jesus to save them. Jesus screams out, I'm here. Here I am. And here's the cool thing, Jews. If you will drink from this fountain, I'll make you the fountain next. Brothers and sisters, I know that most of you have drunk of that fountain. I know you've accepted God's offer to forgive your sin. I know you are not bound for hell. What I'm here to tell you this morning is he has taken the fountain and he has planted it firmly in your heart. When you go through this dry community and this culture and this country that is lost and spiraling downward and whether Trump or whoever may becomes president will continue this thirst for righteousness and justice and hope, it is you in which they should find. You are not the Savior, but His fountain flows out of you through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is us. This is Him. It was time for the religious Jews to decide what to do with Jesus, the Messiah. He had proven Himself, and it was time to decide. He had presented Himself, and it was time to decide. He was inviting these Jews who were looking back at how God had provided for their flesh and inviting them to let Him now provide salvation for their souls from their sin and disobedience even to the Mosaic law that he had just told them they had broken. And for those who would allow him to quench their thirst, he promised to make them fountains of living water themselves through the Holy Spirit. And the crowd responds. When the crowds heard him saying this, some of them declared, surely this man's a prophet. He's the one we've been expecting. Others said, he's the Messiah. Still others said, he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born, and I'd like to add, so was Jesus. They didn't look beneath the surface. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. Verse 45, when the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, okay? Remember that the Jewish religious leaders had sent the temple guards to arrest him? They come back and they haven't arrested Jesus. The leading priests and Pharisees are exasperated. Why did you bring him in? We've never heard anybody speak like this, they responded. Can you imagine what it would be like to hear him preach? Verse 47, have you been led astray too, the Pharisees mocked? Listen to their argument. You stupid guards. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who even believes in him? The foolish crowd follows him, but they're ignorant of the law. God's curse on them. They can go to hell with him. Do you understand their argument? We're smart. We've studied the scriptures. He ain't it. And you guards, are you that simple-minded like the crowd? Are you serious? Wow. There's not one of us, I love this, there's not one of us who even believes in this guy. God's curse on the crowd, right? Then, Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he's been given a hearing? Uh-oh. Crack in their team. I don't know if Nicodemus is saved here or not. What we do know is after Jesus' death, Nicodemus is one of the two people to deal with his body. 
So it is generally believed by Christians that he becomes a follower of Jesus, but they're sure a crack. Remember that the Jewish religious leaders just said, none of us believe in him. And then Nicodemus speaks up. Maybe there was one. They replied, are you from Galilee too, Nicodemus? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Again, they didn't even investigate where he had been born. Then the meeting broke up and everybody went home. Just so you know, this is why we're studying the life of Christ from the scriptures, from all four gospels, because we need to go below the surface. We all generally know who Jesus is or what he claimed about himself or some of the miracles he did, but I'm not sure we understand within context why he does what he does. And when you start understanding the context, you start learning new things about Jesus. And so as we wrap up our time together this morning, my question for you is, what are you going to do with him? I know that most of you are saved. The question is, are you following him? Have you realized that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he has planted within you the Holy Spirit who is a wellspring of fresh water for dry souls? That's why we're still here, family. Not just to make the world a better place, but to take as many people into our family as God will allow. If you're here this morning and you've been on the search with us or you're trying to figure out what truth is, it's time to accept Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Don't delay. Accept his offer to forgive you for all of your sin, no matter what your sin is. Jesus forgives murderers and thieves and liars and adulterers. He forgives homosexuals and, and, and straight people who are living in sin. He forgives self-righteous people and, and Democrats and Baptists and socialists. He forgives everybody. Americans and Russians and people from Mexico. He forgives people in Venezuela. For God so loved the world, he sent his son into the world so that the world can be saved. You can be saved. To die in your sins is the dumbest thing you could ever do. Don't be dumb. That's going to be our Carpenter's Way t-shirt. It could be a perfect approach to the gospel. Don't become a member of Carpenter's Way. Become a member of God's family through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who don't know you this morning that you will quench their spiritual thirst right now. If you do not know him today, I beg of you to tell him you know you're a sinner and he's the only one who can forgive your sin and you accept his offer to forgive you. Tell him you know he's in charge, he's the Lord, and that you give him your life and you accept his offer to forgive you. You can do it in your living room. You can do it in this church worship center. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to scream from the mountaintop, but you will. There will be joy immense. And for those of you who have known him as your Savior but have not seen your life as a wellspring of hope for the lost, tell him you want to be that today. No matter the cost. Lord Jesus, you have heard the prayers of your people and now answer them. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. 
So we've sent people all over the globe to tell other people this. And next week we're going to celebrate that. So please come next Sunday. It's going to be awesome. Even if you're visiting, even if you're watching on the Internet and you've never met a missionary, we would love to introduce you to a few. Guys, listen, I love Carpenter's Way, and I love worshiping with you, but there's something so much more important. Don't just know Jesus. Get to know him. Love you. Have a wonderful Sunday. NASCAR starts at 2.30. Bye-bye.